Yesterday, Kise mentioned Indra's net, which is a very beautiful image and teaching and illustration and realization that is very old. It originally came from the Vedic texts about 1000 BCE and actually predates Hinduism and Buddhism. According to this legend, Indra, who was the leader of the gods, uh, specifically the, the deva realms in some traditions, but all the various realms, was charged with protecting humankind. And he lived in a palace on the top of Mount Meru, and on one occasion cast an infinite net from the top of that mountain that extended in all directions without ending. At each place that the strands of this infinite net intersected, there's a jewel. Each jewel reflects all the other jewels in the net so that every aspect of this infinity of existence is reflected. No jewel can exist without all of the others because it is a reflection of all the other jewels and no more than that. So sitting here, each of us exists only because of everyone else who is sitting in this room. Because of everyone who's participating in Zoom. Because of every living being on the planet. Because of the planet itself because of the sun, because of each bit of dust in the solar system and in the universe. Anything that we have identified and named that is us. And everything that we haven't identified and haven't named, including COVID. odd to contemplate we exist because of COVID. But earnest contemplation of Indra's net is said to have spawned awakening in many diligent practitioners. I would say earnest contemplation and realization of some aspect of Indra's net has sparked awakening. This is the same Indra who comes down from heaven after the Buddha's awakening. And the Buddha is concerned because he doesn't think that anyone will be able to understand what he has seen. So he decides not to teach. But Indra urges the Buddha to go forth and teach human beings. But the Buddha thinks because human beings have so much dust in their eyes, which we all understand, that he doesn't think it's possible. But Indra says, well, you could find people who have only a little dust in their eyes. Or we could add people who are so determined to clear the dust from their eyes that they come to a seven-day silent retreat. I want to thank the people who have undertaken this extra hour of sitting 
each night, and Kisei, who has done it in the past and is supporting them. It is at least an accomplishment that you can tell your children and grandchildren about later. <laughs> oh, when I was your age, I had to walk 60 miles from Portland to Klatsk, and I had my bare feet in the rain, and then we sat up all night. <laughs> It's also a triumph over fear. The fear of what will happen if you don't get enough sleep. I can't do it now, but I have sat up all night in the past in Sashin more than once, and I know its benefits. You realize that you can be okay, as Kisa mentioned, with whatever arises. You watch impermanence happen. You watch things arise, exist for a while, and then fade away, all kinds of states of mind. Maybe a major benefit is that when your mind is tired, so tired, it does not have enough energy to talk to you. And you begin to discover what a quiet mind is actually like. You begin to live in your body and not in your mind. This is really important to experience what it's like when your mind is not talking to you all the time. And thus acquainted, you can then bring that quiet mind back when you aren't drugged by sleepiness and then it becomes a quiet, alert mind. This is invaluable. Invaluable. As Hogan mentioned, we can begin to glimpse this truth when we trace the history of one bit of food in our oryoki bowl, part of our mindful eating practices. If we follow this one morsel backwards, we encounter the servers who put the bowls of food on the cart, the cooks, the choppers in the kitchen, the person who shopped for the food in the grocery store, the checkout clerk, the grocery store clerks who put things on the shelf and labeled the price, the truck drivers, then back to the factory and packing house workers, and back to the farmers and the field workers, and the soil organisms, and the earthworms, and the pollinators, and the seed and the rain and the sunshine back to the plant that that seed came from. And then we begin going backwards again. And then if we really sit with that awareness, we can spread out laterally, let's say, with an orange. We have the people who designed and manufactured that little adhesive sticker that tells what kind of orange it is and has a barcode on it so that we can check out quickly. And the people who designed, manufactured, and assembled the boxes that the oranges were shipped in, and the people who cut the trees to make the cardboard or recycled the cardboard that we put into our cardboard recycling box outside, and so on. It becomes Indra's net quite quickly. 
One orange is brought to us as a gift of the life energy of countless untold beings. We can eat it mindlessly while surfing the web, or we can relax into one of the most pleasurable things that we humans do each day and open our awareness to Indra's net alive in our bowl, alive in our mouth, alive in our body with each bite of orange. And then gratitude spontaneously arises Indra's net also implies what Hogan mentioned, that when we cling to something, we create the opposite. Every jeweled person in Indra's net contributes to our existence. If we think about that for a while, we realize we have to give up our notion that we are creating our own life and that some people are just unlikable and are obstructions to our self-creation project. When dislike arises in our mind, can we switch to gratitude for those we dislike because they too are continuous co-creators of our life? If you look at Indra's net and remove the concept of time, this is very hard to do because we are so conditioned to the concept of time. But removing the context of time, as one person said, is like putting the past and present and future all on one plate. That was a person who is not a practitioner, who was guided in an exercise stepping aside from time. It was the wife of one of our um, practitioners who did in practice. And just in that little guidance, she had this insight into, as she stated it, where I am now, past and present and future are all on one plate. So if you remove the concept of time, then as Kisei hinted, when the Buddha broke through delusion and awakened, then every other being, every aspect of reality was also awakened, liberated, including us here in what we call now, and what we call the future. Because, as she and Hogan pointed out, there is actually only now. The other implication is that we awaken that as we awaken, every other thing is also liberated. As we awaken, with every tiny degree of awakening, every other thing is also liberated. Sentient beings are numberless, and the amount of suffering and the experience that creates is boundless. But as we have seen so clearly in the pandemic and the political infighting, Currently, we cannot free anyone but ourselves from delusion, and that is not easy. How do we free ourselves, the only person, the only jewel that we can set free? <coughs> there is no scheme, no set of rules. If there were, then we wouldn't have three yanas, 
the Theravadan teachings and the Pali, Pali Canon, the Mahayana teachings, including the Zen teachings and the Vajrayana teachings. If there were a simple scheme and one way to do this, we wouldn't have all these teachings and the many schools of Buddhism. There is no gradual path to follow that, if we follow it diligently, will guarantee us enlightenment in 45 days or 45 years. A PhD in Buddhist studies, personal study with the Dalai Lama, a bop on the head by our guru with a peacock feather, one million full prostration bows, taking jukai and scrupulously following the precepts, a vegan diet and never wearing leather, or not eating anything that has not been formally offered to us, or all the austerities that the Buddha followed, and I only mentioned a few of them. He describes things like uh, spending a long time uh, on all fours, walking around on all fours like a dog. He describes um, eating, eating shit. That was his only food in one of his practices of austerity. None of these will guarantee us enlightenment and freedom for our own from our own suffering or guarantee our ability to free anyone in the world from suffering. However, as Kisei mentioned, Krishnamurti said, enlightenment is an accident, but some activities make you accident-prone. We are here in this session giving and listening to this talk, being receptive to this talk, not by accident, but through the action of every occurrence in our lives up to this moment. Every occurrence in our lives, whether we regard them as blissful or traumatic, led us to this moment. Every occurrence in our life, whether we regard them as blissful or traumatic, led us to this moment, this place. So can we be grateful for them all? That's a huge shift. The wonderful and the horrible, can we be grateful for them all? They are all the strands that intersect. They are all in the jewel that we call by our name. And they have all brought us to this place and they all keep us in our seats, keep us searching deeper. During Rohatsu Sashin, we look to the Buddha's path to enlightenment as a guide. How did the Buddha's enlightenment occur? Did the Buddha follow a gradual path or a sudden path? Did enlightenment descend suddenly like a crack of thunder out of nowhere? As I mentioned on Monday, the Buddha studied for many years with several masters. But finally he just sat down by himself with just his body and mind. We don't know how long that search took. We don't even know how long his final meditation took. The Buddha himself has talked about seven years of total dedication to after his study with different masters and so on, multiple realizations. 
he had realized that the mind was the source of suffering, specifically through its clinging. We've all seen this during Sashin, how tenaciously our mind clings to thinking and thoughts. It's really unbelievable how tenacious our mind is about continually thinking. In examining that for myself, I think that the mind really believes that continuous thinking is the way to keep us safe. And if we ask for evidence, it says, well, you're alive, aren't you? It worked. (laughs) So don't risk giving it up. Something terrible could happen while uh, we're not thinking. But we begin to realize, and the Buddha realized, that, that, that the very mind that was continuously creating suffering was continuously creating thoughts of anxiety, fear, jealousy, cruelty, that that very mind was the source of suffering. And it was also the means to the end of suffering, if it were properly trained. Now, what about all those Zen koans that tell us that the master hit the student and they were suddenly enlightened, or blew out a candle and they were suddenly enlightened, or laughed loudly or shouted or held up one finger or said words like, now I have pacified your mind for you. And then the mysterious pivot turned and the student's mind was opened. The koans don't tell us about the years of hard practice that went before that. Sometimes if we read the backstory and read the life of that person, that student, we realize, ah, years of practice. Kisei quoted one of my favorite passages from the Pali Canon, a part of a passage in the Deveda Vitaka Sutta, two kinds of thought. Actually, we have a, I made up a chant for what the Buddha says about his idea to de- develop a categorization of his thoughts. So this is actually a very interesting practice to do. You could spend one period... Um, just watching your thoughts, and any thoughts that's about I, me, mine, basically, you could say, okay, I'm not interested. So there's, there's ways as we examine our thoughts to begin to get some distance on our thoughts, some perspective on our thoughts, what's really going on. So the Buddha actually said, I'm going to divide my thoughts into two categories. And this sutta tells us how the Buddha trained his mind. First he sought a secluded place away from the noise and dust of the world, as you do when you come to the monastery. The Buddha was very specific about this, saying, then we have to let go of clinging and grief for the world, clinging to and grief for the world one of the most, I think, important passages in this sutra and in the the story of the Buddha's awakening. We have to let go of despair, grief, about the condition of the world. And that means not thinking about it all the time. 
And that means putting aside social media, which feeds it to us all the time. To let go of grief for the world, to face it as the truth of samsara. The sometimes overwhelming and endless churning of suffering in the world. To realize it exists, suffering exists and will always exist. If you have lived long enough, you realize that wars have existed since humanoids have existed and before that among primates. And if you read history books, you know that during the American Revolution and afterwards as we were trying to create the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and Bill of Rights, there was horrible fighting and calumny in the newspapers, worse than we see now. And during the Civil War, of course, the nation was completely divided. People killed each other over that division in huge numbers. So wars have existed since humanoids have existed, and before that, among primates. Primates fight, kill each other. So we have to face, we will not end suffering in the world. We will not end war. We will not end the arising of civilizations, including democracies, and their gradual decline and disappearance, and then the arising of something else. But we can end the war in our hearts. We can gain perspective on impermanence and then step back from the suffering that impermanence seems to cause us. And we can follow teachers or other people who seem to have done that, who seem to have ended their war with how things are and thus have become more effective in the work that they do in the world of suffering. Any work they do to relieve suffering, taking care of unvaccinated COVID patients and their angry families in the ICU, providing therapy for those doctors and nurses when they start to burn out, parenting a child with autism, teaching kindergarten, helping someone who's angry about their mailbox key not working in the post office, raking the lawn for an elderly person who can't do it anymore, picking up trash on the sidewalk for one block as we walk in Portland, serving in Congress, and taking a frightened child, perhaps our own inner frightened child, into our lap and holding it with loving kindness. If we let go of our grief for the world, if only for the time we are here in Sashim, so we can dig down into the source of that suffering and see its origins, we can see its origins in the deep mind, mind of our own mind. As he approached enlightenment, the Buddha recounts that he did this by looking at the effect of the different kinds of thoughts that arose in his mind. So the Buddha's mind was just like our mind. He realized that thoughts of desire, is called in the canon sensual desire. It means for sense pleasures, it doesn't mean just sexual desire, but for sense pleasures, 
or for acquiring things. If I get this, then I'll be happy. And Amazon has um, really amplified that a lot. Hmm? Have you ever noticed a package arising and then you don't open it for a while? Because the excitement was in ordering it and not in having it. Isn't that interesting? So the Buddha realized that thoughts of desire, of ill will, we all know what that is, and cruelty, he said, this leads to my own affliction and to others' affliction, these kinds of thoughts. It obstructs wisdom. These thoughts obstruct wisdom, cause difficulties, and lead away from enlightenment. Certain thoughts obstruct wisdom. In meditation, we can see that our thoughts and our emotions create a dense fog that keeps us from seeing clearly, from experiencing the beauty of the world that calls to us all the time. Be here, right here. So the Buddha decided to set that category of thoughts aside. And he turned his mind towards thoughts that served as antidotes to the thoughts that caused suffering, and thoughts that would create serenity and happiness in his own heart-mind and the heart-minds of others. Thoughts of renunciation. That's very interesting. Thoughts of renunciation. All that I have acquired will gradually be dispersed and disappear as time passes, and as I become sick, Age and die, so being attached to them will only result in suffering. To know that for ourselves is profound. The Buddha turned his mind away from thoughts of cruelty and ill will when they arose, towards thoughts of loving kindness and thoughts of compassion. This is the basis of our loving kindness practice, our compassion practice. is this realization, direct realization of the Buddha. Now we often think, well, you know, my difficult thoughts and emotions, I have to go into them. That's fine. Go into them, examine them. But, and sometimes therapy is very, very important. But we all know that when circumstances change, they can disappear. Whether that circumstance is Therapy, whether that circumstance is medication, whether that circumstance is falling in love with someone, whether that circumstance is a sudden emergency and we're taking care of people and not thinking about our own self. So the Buddha said, there's a way to do away with these thoughts that cause affliction. And, that, and out of that we developed our various practices. So he said, whenever a thought of cruelty arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, and did away with it. Bhikkhus, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of cruelty, they have abandoned the thought of non-cruelty to cultivate the thought of cruelty. And then their mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty, and the same for thoughts of desire and ill will. And in this way, he recounts, I steadied my mind internally, quieted it, 
brought it to singleness and concentrated it. Why is that? So my mind should not be disturbed, as I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute. Tireless energy was aroused in me, and unremitting mindfulness was established. My body was tranquil and untroubled, my mind concentrated and unified. Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, the first level of meditative absorptions, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So the thought stream becomes very purified and can be directed towards whatever we want to ponder. With the stilling of applied and sustained thought, I entered upon and abided in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. With the fading away as well of rapture, I abided in equanimity and mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body, I entered upon and abided in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce, he has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. So, in the canon, it talks about the Buddha, actually at his death, descending into these various deeper states of meditation. So enjoying for the last time what he had learned to do with his mind. It's uh, quite inspiring, actually. And all of us have had some touch of this. Hmm? some touch of this, um, the joy of the concentrated mind into which we can drop a question and wait and sit quietly and then something will come up. The, The joy of not thinking and not being stressed by our thoughts, we could call that rapture. And then if we continue to move through the states of concentration hold the mind concentrated and quiet, then eventually the thoughts disappear and there are different states that arise. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, he says, this is fourth jhana, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, I entered upon and abided in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure and the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. And then my favorite passage, and I actually, to memorize it, I made it into a song, because when you get old, (laughs) songs help you remember words. (laughs) With my concentrated mind thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to... The Buddha tells us, with each of these words, the condition of his mind as he entered the last stages of his path to awakening. Notice that he begins with my concentrated mind. He begins with my concentrated mind, and then purified of what? He told us, purified of afflictive thoughts and emotions. They're no longer arising. Bright, clear as if illuminated, so that the mind 
So that, that anything that the mind ponders can be seen without distortion of thoughts or emotions and thus reveal itself. As happened when the Buddha first contemplated his past lives and saw how they had led to this moment of clarity under the Bodhi tree, the reading that Kisei did. The Buddha is actually contemplating conditioned things because he has set out on his search to try to find the unconditioned. So he contemplates his past lives to see the the operating, how this operates. Conditioning and how they had led to this moment of clarity under the Bodhi tree. And then the Buddha, with his mind thus prepared, contemplated the arising and passing away of beings and saw how karma works. And then pondered how to dissolve the mental forces that hinder enlightenment. Malleable and wieldy, what does that mean about our mind? It, malleable and wieldy. Wieldy means you can pick it up and put it down, as we do during a body scan. A body scan is not just an exercise from MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. A body scan is not just a way to bring our mind into our one wonderful body vehicle, or as one of our practitioners calls it, our earth suit, for enlightenment, our vehicle for enlightenment. It's not just a way to relax the body for optimal meditation, which is wonderful, but it is repetitive practice that makes the mind flexible and light so that we can place it on something, which you can do now on your left big toe, and then pick it up and put it into your stomach, wherever you think your stomach is. Or we can realize that the mind has generated jealous thoughts, and we can either hold the mind's awareness there, or we can pick it up and put it down in thoughts of appreciation and joy for others' happiness and success. So, you know, don't have the illusion that teachers don't do this practice, or free from these practices or these difficulties. I love to watch my mind and see the most absurd thing it generates. So, uh, during this session so far, (laughs) hit number one was it suddenly generated a vivid picture of a bunch of celery and a voice said, celery. (laughs) Thank you very much. And then because I'm working on the mindfulness book, mindful medicine book, and it's going back and forth, you know, for copy editing, etc., until you don't want to read your own words anymore. And, but it won't come out till next summer. So then the, then the mind says, what if somebody publishes a book on mindful medicine before yours comes out? It's like, stop it. <laughs> We're going to switch to appreciative joy. If someone publishes a book on mindful medicine, let us hope it's better than your book. And then you can see that manifesting, if you really have practiced with manifesting um, sympathetic joy. So malleable and wieldy. Malleable means it can be changed like clay. It can be molded. That's exactly what the Buddha is talking about. If it's 
if the mind has taken the shape of jealousy, like mine did, briefly, then I can remold the clay of the mind. It's just energy. And I can make it into the stuff of, may you, may you be successful, more successful than me. When I bow here before the talk, my prayer is, may everyone in this room become enlightened before me. That comes from my Zimiroshi. So we can see that our mind is stuck on the suffering of the world, and we can pick it up, and we can put it down on the serenity of a cat purring, or the sound of the rain. Steady and imperturbable, we know when this happens in Zazen, if only for a few minutes, or 10 minutes, or 30 minutes, the mind is not disturbed by the sound of someone coughing, or thunder, or a bowl breaking, or the pain in our body. Steady and imperturbable. This is at first pleasurable, but as we remain in it, we realize, oh, this is actually the natural state of my mind. This is the way I'm supposed to be. Can I cultivate it so it becomes more and more of my, of my experience? Buddhism is full of the tension of opposites. It's simultaneously true that there is a path to follow, as laid out by the Buddha, as described by the Buddha so well in his autobiographical speaking. There is a path to follow to increase the opportunity for the mind to quiet and the mysterious pivot to turn us inside out so that we are not just one lonely jewel in the endless net of existence, but the entire vibrant net. It is true that we have to work hard as the Buddha did. And then, as the Buddha did, when he recalled in childhood his relaxation under the tree as his father was plowing, then to relax the body and mind. And to realize that once the mind is silent, everything relaxes, the mind and the body with it. The Shuso for the downtown Ango period asked that people write a little something about silent illumination, and this is what I wrote. Silent refers to how the mind must be in order for the mysterious pivot to turn and reveal the underlying nature of reality. We call this awakening. And for many of you, it may have turned before, just glimpses, as I mentioned in the first talk. Little glimpses we call peak moments. But when we learn to quiet the mind, this happens more and more. Illumination refers to the self-revealing nature of reality that shines through all of creation and illuminates the world. We call this unending beauty and respond with wonder. Please continue your diligent practice. The quiet in this room is wonderful.
wonderful to sit in. And when the mind becomes agitated, rest in that quiet, rest in the peace in the room, breathe it in, saturate your body and mind with that peace. Or saturate your body and mind with the peace in the forest or in the sky. The stability of the earth all around us. Nature is calling to us. Quiet your mind, open to us. We're just waiting for you to join us.